Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The FT. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the latest edition of Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. This week, we're going to be talking about three key issues, the prospects for a global bank levy, asset sales by Royal Bank of Scotland, and the fortunes of so-called zombie companies. I'm joined in the studio this week by Charlene Goff, retail banking correspondent, and Anusha Skui, the FT's capital markets reporter. Global markets were down sharply again this morning before recovering amid fears about the impact of new regulations on European banks' profitability, as well as concerns about sluggish economic growth across the region. Reports of the Financial Services Authority, the UK's markets watchdog, is forcing banks to conduct a new round of Eurocentric stress tests focused on banks' exposure to Greece and other embattled economies, has further heightened those concerns. With G20 finance ministers now having wrapped up a weekend of talks in South Korea without any agreement on a global banking levy, we'll be looking at the different options available to governments as they look to tax banks for the systemic risks they pose to society. We'll also be taking a closer look at the Royal Bank of Scotland and how it's progressing with its massive asset sale program. And finally, we'll be talking to Anusha about so-called zombie companies and the role of the banking sector in creating these debt-laden shells. But first, Charlene, it seems at the moment for some sort of global banking levy may have passed. Here in the UK, George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, says he's determined to push forward with a levy in his first budget. What detail do we have on a UK levy? Well, we don't have a huge amount of detail on it at the moment, other than they're very keen to push ahead with this. It's been a proposal from the Tories for some time, and they've always said that you know they would want to go ahead unilaterally if they didn't have the international backing. Is there credibility, though, in these sort of unilateral efforts sort of tax the system. I mean, because it seems that there's the sort of schism that's developed is from countries like Canada and like Australia who've said, look, our system went through the crisis, um, fared relatively well. We had the right checks in place. We had the right structure in place. Therefore, we shouldn't be made to pay through some sort of global levy for the mistakes of other countries. I mean, is that a credible argument? And second, isn't this going to create the very thing that people are concerned about, which is a regulatory arbitrage, and that banks will seek to locate in jurisdictions that will put in place less harsh regimes, lower taxes, etc.? Well, that definitely is the big fear. And we've already seen quite a few bankers coming out and saying that, you know, we can't have this kind of uneven playing field. You know, we had that a bit on bonuses when the UK went ahead with its bonus tax. Doing that again on regulation could be quite dangerous. And we could see, you 
you know, banks are saying they could start to relocate some of their teams. Although it sort of depends what happens in the US, for example. I mean, that's you know one of the main markets to watch. It's kind of unlikely that banks would want to relocate to somewhere like Canada or the more sort of peripheral markets. So, you know, we may see a sort of similar thing happening in the US. It's yet to be decided. But it would be, I think, quite difficult for banks to just uproot and shift their kind of operations overseas. I think the big thing that they are really anti is this breaking up of the banks. And that's something that they do feel would really uh, be, a, be a dangerous precedent to set and very difficult and complex to bring in. Anusha, we've seen that having a huge impact on obviously bank stocks in the market and just fears over any lack of clarity about what's going to come through in different jurisdictions. I mean, how are the people you're talking to playing that angle? There's a lot of uncertainty in the in the markets generally at the moment. And, you know, one day investors, you know, are risk on. They have some risk appetite. We see a bit of a rally. The next day they're freaked out by something mm. and uh, quickly risk comes off. And we've seen this in quite a few different pockets of the markets where really investors have demonstrated the scars that they bear from the Lehman collapse, i.e. their reticence to take a big risk and put on big risk and to move quite quickly out of markets. And that's how we see these big corrections. The big overhanging cloud is the risk of sovereign debt to banks. So the big holdings that they have of government bonds. And, you know, it's almost like we're having a repetition, in my opinion, of the sort of where the bodies lie fear that haunted the banking system when the subprime crisis started. bankers I talk to, I mean, consistently say that they feel, at least in terms of direct exposure Mm. on Greece, you know, now we have these hungry concerns of a Greek-style crisis happening there, uh, despite the fact it's outside the so-called Eurozone. Mm. They say this is overblown. They say that if you look at our direct sovereign exposure, Mm -hmm. it's limited, it's containable. You know, it could be in the low billions for some banks. It's in the high billions for others across particular countries, maybe higher. But that in terms of containable sovereign risk, that is manageable and that the market is overreacting. And, you know, there is this talk, you know, as you and I have discussed before in in other forums about uh, some investors actually profiting off this uncertainty by driving you know, shares down on overblown fears. And, and do you feel that's going on at all? Or do you feel simply that perhaps there's not as much transparency about, as you said, where the bodies lie? Well, I think it's unclear, right? I mean, that, that I think if you, for example, I mean, Goldman Sachs, um, I think, did some analysis um, on this very point and said that, you know, that it's definitely not a sovereign debt crisis is not US subprime. There would have to be a huge level of Such default. Such as a Spanish default. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be huge um, to, to, to have anywhere near the same impact. And, and it's basically not that. And in fact, they think that stock markets for Europe are, you know, pricing in too big um, mm-hmm. a negative uh, scenario. Having said that, the, the idea of Greece defaulting remains an investor's concerns. You know, it's unclear. Obviously, they'll need time to work through their austerity measures and we're already seeing you know some positive headlines around some of the countries but the question you know it's just uncertainty when you start to pull at the thread of you know what if Greece defaults what impact that has that's I think when investors start and start to worry and it's a good point it's a good point I mean I guess for us we just always look at it with you know we're coming up to another earnings seasons relatively quickly we saw blowout earnings for some banks in the first quarter. We've had a completely, you know, different situation in Europe over the past few months. We'll start, have to start to see how that's impacted the bottom line, coupled with, as we've just been discussing, massive regulatory uncertainty. It's almost a bit of a perfect storm. And and, and on European that and, and on that point, I mean, it does always seem to 
filter back down to this point that you know regulation is also scaring investors you know, uncertainty and with that investors just you know want to be on the back foot one one area i had a little bit of a look at recently which might be of interest is the dividend futures market and actually there was a massive correction in fact the biggest one day correction that market has ever seen even during the lehman times um, at the start of may and that really highlighted a disconnect between what investors were thinking what analysts have been predicting for corporate earnings and the positive outlook and what investors were really thinking. A lot of that is to do with their fear and the illiquidity of markets, but it, it does factor in some doubt into the future outlook for corporates. And also, it's not just the uncertainty over regulation that's probably holding investors back. It's all the economic uncertainty as well. And like people have seen, you know, growth start to come back a little bit, but it's all still very fragile. And they probably want a, another couple of quarters of, of that being at least stable before they'll get any confidence and sort of get over the fears of a double dip recession. Let's turn to one of the banks that was hardest hit during the crisis and is now on a fairly broad restructuring program, shall we say, Royal Bank of Scotland. Charlene, you're saying there may be some movement over the next few weeks and part of this as part of this asset sale program. What can you tell us about that? Well, we're now sort of reaching the final stages on a couple of these asset sales. And RBS, as you said, is going through this sort of major restructuring. And it's been in talks with a number of buyers over various parts of its business, um, really for most of this year. It's selling its 300 retail branches. We are expecting the final bids on that beginning of next week. Uh, And that's been quite an interesting one because there's only really Santander that's remaining as the only sort of credible bidder. Um, BBVA, its Spanish rival, is also in there still, but it's not really expected to put forward a a very competitive bid. So it looks like that Santander is sort of sewing that deal up. It just will be quite interesting to see the movement on price, given that the other bidders have sort of fallen away over over the last few weeks. I have sort of a more fundamental question on, on RBS. When I was over in Europe last week, there was a lot of anger among some of the bankers I talked to about what they feel as some very aggressive hiring tactics by the bank and its global markets division, its investment banking decision about them paying very big money to still get star bankers in, to ratchet up profits in areas that they're already strong at, but also to build out areas that they haven't traditionally been strong in on, shall we say, the riskier side uh, of investment banking. There's a lot of concern out there that is this a market that RBS, as a state-owned bank, is this a market they should be in overall? Is this something you're hearing from investors? You know, is this, this something a bank? We talked, you mentioned at the beginning about splitting up the banks. RBS would obviously be, you know, a prime contender of that for any regulations such as that to come in. But is this something that management is concerned about? Is this something they are dealing with with investors? Or is it more just, would you classify it as sour grapes from rival banks? I think this is a huge issue from for RBS. And I think it has been ever since the bailout. And we saw a it really um, come to a head over bonuses when, you know, they were trying to negotiate their bonus pool. And there was this incredible outcry from public, uh, from the public, as well as from investors over, you know, what RBS should be doing, how much they should be able to pay and what risks they should be taking, given that the taxpayer now has a 70% stake in the bank. And I think that that taxpayer money is really defining them. And it's very hard for management under the leadership of Stephen Hester to kind of shake that off. I mean, the other argument for them doing these kind of investment banking 
activities is that that's where the money is. I mean, there's very little money to be made at the moment in traditional retail banking. You know, retail banks are having a really, really but hard time. But how much time. leverage and how much risk do they have to take on to make that money? That's that's sort of the issue, isn't it? And people are saying, look, I don't want my effectively what are my tax dollars put into those risky activities. Absolutely. And this is a question mark, you know, the, the, RBS is facing this criticism and Lloyd's is very much facing this criticism. You know, what is their role as a state-backed bank? But the way it's been done in this country is that although the government has bailed them out, the government has not taken a role in the management of the bank. But don't you think that should they chalk up a huge loss in some type of deal that they do, whether it's, you know, a loan portfolio that goes bad or a very complex structured product as that market returns, which, you know, Anusha can address about, isn't one big loss going to cause some major problems from them on that front. If they make the wrong decision, absolutely. I mean, that's the risk they take. But at the moment, the the, the Global Banking and Markets Division has been very profitable. And one area which uh, has sparked a lot of controversy in, in the financial community, in which Charlene and I, we looked at last month, was Lloyd's role in the LBO market, the leverage buyout market, where we saw Lloyd's, you know, becoming number one in Europe for funding European LBOs, and these are fairly like uh, this is essentially funding the private equity investment communities, to, you know, returns uh, in, in the corporate sector. So the question is, is that should they be doing that, or should they be lending to small companies that you know aren't being taken, just being taken isn't over that by argument LBOs? Argument a bit of a red herring in the sense that if you look at demand for loans among precisely those small businesses that you're talking about, they actually don't want to take on additional lending at this time. They don't need the capital this time. And therefore, all this talk about lending and upping lending and lending targets is a bit of a red herring about the health of the sector in general. Well, I hear this point, and I'm interested to hear what Charlene says, because obviously this is the whole paradox of the credit crunch, right? Suppose it is there a credit crunch because uh, companies aren't asking for lever- first as much borrowing because they're shrinking, leverage has fallen. But some bankers have told me, well, actually, if you get the very small end, it's a question as for companies of box ticking for banks. So they go to the bank, their local bank, and say, I want this facility, and they have to tick a few boxes. And if they, if they literally don't meet those requirements, they just don't get further on the queue. It's not like some listed PLC going to, having a relationship with that bank. I mean, I don't know if that's right, Charlene. Yeah, I think I think that is. But I think really the the whole credit supply issue has been one that is quite hard to get our heads around because everyone tells you different things. And you've got the politicians kicking off at the banks. You've got the banks saying, look, we're trying to lend. You know, it's the businesses that are saying that they can't get credit are the ones that no one in their right mind would lend to. I think the other thing with RBS is that they have lost a lot of people. So, you know, the fact that they're on this big recruitment drive is sort of filling the holes, plugging the gaps that, that, where people have defected. Because, of course, that's another big problem for these banks if they can't offer Pay I'm not sure I buy that argument. But I did want to talk to Anusha today about a particular segment of the community, the so-called zombie companies. These are the bankers who specialize in helping companies that have too much debt. And very particular to Europe, and UK is, has been the center of a lot of restructuring, mainly because uh, we have uh, laws which are conducive to allowing restructuring here. So a lot of restructuring is done in, in London, but it's representative of pan-European companies and their lenders. And one of the big themes last year, as the crisis moved from Wall Street to Main Street, uh, Main Street and companies needed to restructure their debts, banks that were lending to them wanted to see restructurings that didn't see them having to suffer big write-offs as well because they themselves were just coming through the financial crisis and were probably not in the best position to be taking further losses linked to corporate restructurings to companies that they had lent to. So one of the big fears amongst the restructuring community is that you would have a league of companies that were left with too much debt and that they were really existing not to generate economic activity and to recycle assets back into the economy but to really just service their debt. And 
we're starting to see that come through. Bankers are starting to talk now about companies having to come through for second round restructuring. Now, as, as Charlene was sort of highlighting it, it's very difficult in European credit to get any real idea of what's going on. As a lot of these companies are private, but something bankers are starting to talk about now, these sort of second round restructurings. And I don't want to lay too much of the blame at just the bank stores because it's not just their fault. Obviously, European banks are big leverage loan uh, providers, but there are also... Um, other funds that made up called collateralized loan obligations, which are structured vehicles that provided almost 50% of leverage lending at the height of the market. And these funds, it's very difficult to do what we would call a debt for equity swap, which is where you, you cut the company's uh, debt right down and take an equity stake in, instead so the company can come back. How They're, big of an economic impact do these so-called zombies have? Yeah. Well, it's, it's unclear. Right? I mean, some of these companies are very big, but it, it's hard to monitor their progress. I think bankers have worried that there is a policy issue here that we're you know that Europe may be lagging behind other um, jurisdictions because you know we haven't been able to sort of relieve our company our companies of the debts that they're but being burdened with so that they're free to sort of start again and move on and start to generate jobs again but isn't this a larger issue too about the UK's restructuring framework and the role that that's pl- played in there? I mean, what's the lobbying going on on that front, particularly with the new government? I mean, what yeah. type of reforms do you think there have to been? Be made? There have been, you know, the UK in, in in Europe is the most progressive in terms of its restructuring tools, and in fact, we've seen a lot of companies move jurisdiction to the UK so that they can benefit from English laws. That in itself is proved controversial. It's more the way European banks mark their debts or view their loan book compared to US banks. So US. Banks, you know, very broadly, I suppose you could say, have been more progressive in sort of taking the right off some moving aggressive. on. Aggressive, yeah, maybe progressive is the wrong word, but it depends on your view. And European banks have sort of been wanting to, you know, maybe just uh, wait and see, yeah, not make those, not make those provisions, take those provisions. It is very quiet in the restructuring community at the moment. You know, a lot of them are worried about a refinancing wave that is set to hit in the next few years. You know, 2013 and 14 is when Europe faces a big re- wave of refinancing of leverage loans. And there just isn't the the market there anymore to absorb it. So those companies are having to look through different for different ways of funding, and that's happening through the bond market or the equity markets. But there will be a section that will have to go through restructuring. And even even though today we've had some data showing you know default rates falling, there you know is a line and a standard pause. Um, predictions that there's some residual risk going forward about um, increasing defaults. Well, look for that piece by Anusha this week on zombie companies. And that's going to be it for us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Charlene, again, and Anusha for joining me today in the studio. And thanks to you for listening again to Banking Weekly. Banking Weekly is produced by LGA Filatrone. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.